one of the biggest challenges you see, especially early on in, in the career, is making a UX designer and an engineer realize that the biggest growth that they need to have in their job is the overlap of their jobs and how they collaborate together to kind of achieve that. Welcome to The Wagon Live. This week, we have Melanie Yenkin, UX design lead at Google, talking to us about optimization. Starting her career as a graphic designer, Melanie now manages the Google My Business team across the UK and US. In her previous roles, she built and led UX teams globally at startups, Shisbed and eBay, and is currently the founder and coordinator of London Tech Ladies, which is a women's network of over 4,000. This is one episode not to miss. So I studied visual communication and so I came out of um, university as a trained like graphic designer, mostly doing print and branding. And I worked for an agency in Melbourne in Australia where I grew up and um, the industry was so small that you tended to have roles that were pretty diverse. So I would do branding and the clients would say, oh, I want to see how this looks on my digital assets, like my website. Um, And so I would kind of mock that up and I'd be like, oh, I really enjoyed visualizing that, you know, and starting to work in the digital space. And um, whilst I, I worked in um, graphic design for the first like four or five years of my career, and I loved that, but I found it was more subjective than UX design. And when you were doing digital design, you could quantify your decisions with research or with data. But when you were doing a branding, for instance, and someone says, you know, my mom doesn't like purple, um, <laughs> you're a little limited in how you can move them because it's so personal. Um, so I loved the analytical side of digital design. So I was lucky in that role um, at that agency that I could just make that more my focus and digital design was really booming back then. There wasn't really a role of UX design at that point. It was just, you know, you were just designing digitally and flash and uh, whatever it might be on um, websites and was quite diverse doing touch screens and web apps and lots of different digital applications. And then, yeah, that became my specialty. And then as the practice developed and then, you know, I experimented in different parts of um, the design process and eventually kind of narrowing in on the UX design uh, in some previous roles. That's also been called product design. I think every organization calls it slightly different, but it's kind of my specialty was always looking at both visual UI design and the interaction under UX design. And I'm right in saying that you moved to sort of the UX um, director role through being a product manager. But in terms of the graphic design, is is that a fundamental skill of of being the UX director? Um, Yeah. So the first part of there, like my foray into product management um, was when I was at a startup. And um, I think if you try to define the role of a product manager versus a UX designer, it's really like the left and right hand of a person. Like there's so much overlap in terms of what you're doing. You're both ultimately responsible for the product experience. Um, And so naturally I had built up some expertise area in product, um, although I hadn't done that as a formal role before. So when I was at the startup and they needed someone interim to kind of manage the team, I was like, cool, I'll do that. Um, and did that role and hired the person who then replaced me and kind of built the team while we were trying to find them and, you know, built out some analytics team and organization. So it was a fun little foray. Um, but I definitely prefer the design side of my role. So I ended up like just specializing in that. I think graphic design uh, was important for me 
because I learned skills in typography and grids and layouts. I learned through print design ultimately, and that translates really well into UX design. But I don't think it's necessarily a necessity um, because you do have some UX designers in the industry who aren't necessarily from my graphic design background and have specialized more um, in interaction design itself. So um, you, you get a lot of diversity in the role in terms yeah. of the people you see. Um, the, this sort of unplanned uh, uh, a career ended up with you as the UX design lead at Google, and that's specifically within the Google My Business. Uh, mm-hmm. So what is your job exactly? Yeah. So I sit um, in a leadership team and I lead the UX side, so all of the user experience together with my product lead, my engineering lead, and my program management lead. So there's the four of us, and we lead this whole group. And there's about 150 people who work on um, the product space, which is Google My Business. And um, Google My Business as a product, to give you that context, is um, a tool that allows small businesses to get their business information onto Google Search and Maps for free. A lot of people think that you can only get onto Google if like a big business and then master an SEO, um, but that's not true. It's simple to use our product. And then when you're in there, you can interact with customers really easily. Like if you're a restaurant, you can allow them to book tables in your restaurant directly on Google Maps for instance, is like one of the features we work on. Um, And so my role is like I work with my leads and we drive the overall strategy of the team. We set goals um, quarterly for four times a year. And then we review, we have 18 sub teams within our structure. Uh, So we're going through all of their plans and make sure that they, you know, their own plans that they're coming up with make sense considering the overall goals. Um, and then I'm kind of leading my function in UX to make sure that, you know, we're developing our practice and that we're working in the best possible way and that we have the right headcount. Um, so, yeah, and then a lot of my role, um, honestly, is I'm in meetings all day because, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, back-to-back, because uh, at Google we work in just such a collaborative way. We build into each other's products. We have to influence into people in different ways to get stuff done. So at the moment, we're building features into Google Search and into Google Maps. Um, so to do that, we have to spend a lot of time with people from those teams to actually make sure we're doing it in the right way and we have the buy-in. Um, so it's a lot of stakeholder management. I'd say my job's mostly yeah. stakeholder management. As a small business owner, uh, finding out that we could list ourselves for free and get all of the booking systems in place and get all of our like hours on there and our phone number and and you can even put your mobile number on there for people to text you. Seriously cool as as a product. So we're looking at sixteen teams at about one hundred and fifty people. Did you say? Yeah. Um, and is that all levels? Are, are you managing sort of the junior levels up? Yeah. So my structure, so at Google, the way UX works is you manage your specialty. So I manage the UX designers um, and that's about 10 people. And I manage two managers who manage more designers. So I manage the managers and senior designers. And we do have junior designers in that structure. Um, but then we, my 
entire group of UX that works on my project area is like 25 people, but they're all different UX specialties. Um, so I don't manage them directly because they report into someone who actually is a more senior version of their role. And um, so we kind of, I work with them to make sure that the work they're doing makes sense for our product goals, but then they have a mentor and a manager who has a specialty of their area. So we have UX research, we have UX engineering, which is a role of an engineer who's focused specifically on kind of prototyping designs, enabling us to test them uh, with like real data when we go and speak with business owners. We have UX writing, we have visual design, uh, we have content strategy, and we have motion design. So we have all those specialties who we plug in to the process at certain points. So I'm kind of working with my managers to coordinate that to make sure we have the right resources for each of the projects. So a lot of teams, a lot of layers, uh, a lot of managing, managing. Um, I mean, Google's huge. Google is huge. Can you still be innovative working with Google? Yes. Google is unlike anywhere else I've ever worked. So I worked at eBay. I worked at Shipstead, which is like one of their global competitors, which is was originally a Norwegian company, very like European based. Um, and Google's just unlike any of those things. And there's over a hundred thousand people who work there. So yes, it's massive, um, but it's so broad in terms of the things that people work on. But our actual teams tend to be quite small. So in in our space, we'll have five to eight people who work in a cross-functional team on a certain area. I mean, kind of specialists on that and they drive their own roadmap and ideas in terms of what they're going to work on. They just have a space and a thing or a problem that they're focused on. And we set the higher level goals, but then which they're, you know, helping to contribute towards, but they ultimately come up with their own roadmaps. And then we just say, and we give them some feedback on that. The other thing about Google, which I had heard before I joined, which is true is the 20% um, mentality, which is you're allowed to just do whatever you want, like any side project with 20% of your time, people tend to do stuff, which is their like passion projects. And that can turn into a full-time role. It can turn into a fully fleshed project. Like Gmail was a 20% project, um, (laughs) by some engineers. So it's amazing to have that bottom up kind of culture that exists and I've never experienced anything like it and any kind of tops down process that tries to get implemented is like immediately met with (laughs) a lot of resistance because individuals have so much power at the company. They, you know, they are the company. So they, they own the company, you know, with equity and yeah, yeah, their shareholders and um, individual drivers of it. So it's, it's an amazing, unique culture. So 52 days of the year working at Google, you can spend doing, and anything you fancy, you know, work on any passion project, basically. Yeah, you will like have discussion with your manager about uh, what they are. And usually they'll be good for your career or something that helps you with your personal development, um, gets you good exposure. And, you know, so there'll be some kind of coordination that you'll do. Um, but yeah, that's the, that is the practice. Incredible. You mentioned a little earlier that you've got sort of UX uh, engineers. So you know, are you working closely with them? Is, is it something that, that you're directly involved in? Yes. So um, in terms of me as an individual, as a lead, like I work, meet every day with my engineering director and our product lead and our program management lead because all of our functions are so closely tied together. And then all of the sub teams 
that we have will have engineering, design, product management, and program management all embedded and fully dedicated to that area. So the designers literally, when we were in the office, sat together with their engineers. And now that we're at home, uh, you know, chatting and meeting with every day to understand, you know, um, getting their input and ideas early on, um, involvement in brainstorming and ideation, and then feedback on everything that's happening through the design process to make sure that um, they're also experts of that area because we all develop an expertise on our thing that we focus on. And then once they start implementing, you know, regular conversations to make sure that we're able to overcome any hurdles, something might not be possible that we imagined it would have been in the beginning. Um, make sure that we're doing these kind of design reviews throughout the process so that it's matching what was the intended design when we started. So yes, very closely. The closer, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so sort of a big question. Um, what is the role of a UX designer? Yes, hard to answer this clearly. I think the best way, because um, I've heard this described, is if uh, you look at the difference between UI and UX. So um, if UI or visual design is if you think about riding a horse, is the saddle, it's the stirrups and it's the reins. So it's like designing what those things look like that you're going to interact with. But UX design is the feeling you get when you're able to ride the horse. So it's fundamentally about the user and what they're experiencing and how do we actually make sure that, yes, you could you could design the saddle and the stirrups and the reins in lots of different ways, but what is the person actually going to experience when they are, you know, doing the thing? Because they don't care about the saddle and the stirrups and the reins. They care about having an end goal that they're going to achieve. Um, so, yeah, UX designers mostly care about what the user cares about. Um, they care whether the user can accomplish their task when they're using the product. And does the product delight them? Does it help them solve the problem that they have? Because uh, one of the biggest things that a UX designer helps the team to understand is not to fall in love with a solution, which is what you often see is like people have a roadmap just full of features. Like I'm going to implement this shiny thing. And we're going to, then we're going to do our second shiny thing and our third shiny thing. And then it's like, well, no one actually wanted any of those things. Like why didn't we go and check where the users actually cared about it? So what we try and do is fall in love with the problem that we're solving. Like what user problem are we actually solving for? Um, and then the other things that UX designers will do that is kind of a specialty is thinking about accessibility. So how is this going to work for users of a screen reader, users with mobility challenges, um, users who are colorblind, um, lots of different accessibility challenges that we have to spec out with our engineers to make sure that it will work in considering all of those different use cases. And in Google, localization is really important because we're literally designing for everyone all over the world, um, which is just crazy because you always try and narrow in on, you know, who am I actually designing for? It's like, oh, just literally everyone, you know, like a billion people use Google Maps every month. So um, that is a significant part of our process to make sure that anything we design localizes appropriately. And, uh, yeah, so I guess that's description of what we're doing yeah it, it sounds varied you know extremely varied and very hard to pinpoint but i think you explained it well um sort of moving on from that 
you know, we've got a lot of people at Le Wagon who, who are looking at moving on to being UX designers. What sort of advice would you have for somebody who's looking to start that as a career? Yeah, I, I do get asked this a lot. Um, and people ask me, like, what do you hire for when you're hiring for junior designers? Um, so I haven't traditionally hired people because of their education or training. Uh, in fact, you, and you can look at that, but it's never, ever a prerequisite. It's more based on the portfolio of work and the experiences that that person's had. And then partner that up with their how, which is what we call the Google how. Is like how do they actually do their work? So how do they collaborate? How do they deal with ambiguity? How do they communicate? How do they deal with difficult feedback? Um, all of that is just as important because if you have a healthy collaborative working style, you can learn the mm. skills on the job. Um, so it's uh, a kind of a combination of both. So I would say... Uh, my advice to people is to kind of gain experience wherever you can try not to work for free, but try and, you know, try and do some examples in your portfolio of problems that you care about, redesign an app that you use that really annoys you. Like you can do your own examples of work that is interesting for you, which shows your ways of working. Um, and so that you've got that portfolio and body of work to lean upon. Um, the other thing, which is a big important thing to do is get a mentor who mm. can help you. Um, people can struggle with this. And what is good is there's a few platforms that have really popped up um, over the last couple of years that are actually setting up me um, mentoring in a more traditional way. And if you go on LinkedIn every now and then you see a more senior person offering their time um, where you can just pop like 10 minutes in their calendar and have a chat to them. But yeah, having, um, people in your network who you can get feedback from and who can kind of help you understand um, the different areas of your role and um, things that you could be doing to get uh, either onto the ladder or onto the next steps is really important. So that networking and developing that support system is so important. So if, if there's any other uh, questions uh, from the audience regarding Google or, or maybe regarding uh you know, the role of UX at Google or, or the role of a designer, uh, feel free to chuck that in the questions. But for now, if it's okay, we're just going to move on to London Tech Ladies, um, which is a group that you founded. Um, what was the original idea? Yeah, so it was maybe six years ago now or even a bit longer. I was um, working at eBay and Sheryl Sandberg's book Lean In came out. Um, uh, she's the CEO of Facebook and she's started the lean in movement, uh, where the book, I mean, so there are some critics of it, but it has some interesting provocations into it and about leaning into your career and what, um, you could do to help support yourself or, you know, build up a support network. And part of that finished with a call to action to create a circle, which is basically a group of 10 to 15 women that would meet every month and kind of help each other discuss challenges we're having and how to ask for more money and how to negotiate and those kinds of things. So I started the circle with some friends and then, um, decided to open it up on the website so that anyone could join. And then we just had this onslaught of women wanting to join. Like I need a space. And there isn't anywhere for me to go or I've just moved to London and I feel like I don't have any support. So instead of making it small, we ended up making it just allowing anyone to join and every month different <laughs> people would come. 
and it was always focused on soft skill development. So how do we work on confidence, um, negotiation skills, presentation skills, yeah. coaching, um, how to handle you know difficult feedback, like all of those things that are necessary to progress in your career, but you're not actually taught formally in the workplace. You have to learn through experience and that I feel like a lot of organizations could do better to actually support individuals to, because there is a lot that you can get from training um, and a lot of soft skill development. So yeah, it's basically a monthly free soft skill training. And it was um, traditionally for women in tech, um, though we say every event is open to literally anyone from any gender, from any industry, from any background. Uh, We're actually rebranding it. And the leadership team used to just be me running it. It's now, um, a lovely group of um, five different women, and we're going through this new phase of the thing. Um, is it still male-dominated the tech industry? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Sadly, yes. Um, I would say the most succinct way to see where we are today is to look at the. Uh, sorry about my dog barking at me <laughs> through the door. Check out the McKenzie um, Women in the Workplace reports. Um, they publish that every year and have fantastic statistics to show, you know, especially as you progress through each level um, in terms of seniority, just how more and more male dominated the industry gets. Um, and it really uh, it gets worse when you progress from like individual through to management. So for every 100 men who are promoted, um, 72 women are promoted and um, I think it's like 50 women from um, non-white racial backgrounds are promoted. So uh, it's pretty poor when you actually look at the statistics that are there. And I've definitely experienced it myself um, being the only woman in the room many, many times. Yeah. Uh, and you can feel it, that it's definitely still male-dominated. And... You know, I guess it's it's this idea that how do we encourage more women to start the career in tech? How do we make that change? How do we get that that sort of momentum to continue? Yes, there's a lot that we can do. And I think the earlier we start, the better. So I really think school and early school age is where this has to be changed. And I think um, a key thing is the role modeling that we do for STEM subjects. So STEM being science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, all of those when I was growing up were for boys and with very few girls going into those and almost no female teachers who were leading those. And if you ask anyone to name anyone who they knew who did those as careers, they were all men who came to mind. Um, so when you're young, you see things that look familiar to you and then you, you're drawn to those areas. So, um, this role modeling or lack of role modeling, um, is a thing I think is, you know, driving, um, girls to choose different subjects that would then eliminate their choice to actually get into STEM. Um, there's, uh, lots of studies being done into improving what happens in the school. There was a really great TV show recently, um, which wasn't focused necessarily on tech, but it was looking at racism in schools and how to improve that. It was called The School That Tried to End Racism. It was on Channel 4. And it was really great because it shared the research that we form 
our bias of understanding of race and empathy by the age of 11 and 12. Mm. So we understand who, sh- who, you know, we should be with what we should be doing at that age. Um, and if we focus on improving that with children, then the next generation of leaders will then help us improve that in the workforce. Um, so yes, I'm so sorry about my dog. <laughs> um, and yes. So I think starting earlier is a good way to do it. And organizations themselves are always asking, like, how can we encourage more women um, into our roles? Or I've had a lot of people say to me from other companies, like, oh, you know, we definitely want to hire more women, but we're just not getting any in the pipeline. Um, And, you know, where I say, well, I know a lot of women working in engineering, right, and they're not applying to your job for some reason. Like, what is it that you are outwardly projecting that is stopping women from applying? Like, do you have women on your board? Do you have women in your leadership team? Do women have a presence in your publicity? Um, Is your job description actually biased so that women wouldn't apply? You know, I've seen uh, the classic case of an engineer role being written as a hacker you know, that is, and that is very male oriented as a term and not something that maybe um, a woman wants to associate with in terms of that terminology. Um, so there's a lot that you can be doing as an organization to make sure that you are uh, actually, you know, projecting uh, gender diversity in terms of what your organization believes in that would help improve the number of women who are applying to even be in your company. Mm. And then once women are on board in a company, we're terrible at retaining them and growing them, um, especially through um, when women go to have families and then, you know, like the ability to come back into the workplace um, is very, very difficult because you're immediately um, put behind. So great for companies who are um, enabling that in a much healthier way with flexible working and increased maternity and paternity options. Um, but yes, there is still a lot for us to do to improve this. It's, it's so interesting you say about the um, sort of job descriptions, because obviously a lot of us at Wagon are now looking for jobs and particularly within the engineering ones. So much of the, you're right. It's almost the indirect, um, uh, feeling is that this is a masculine role. This is a male job. Um, and even using, you know, certain phrases, I, I won't name any of the job roles because I'm sure there'll be people in the audience applying for them, but, but there's, there's certain, you know, names of jobs that are like, yep. this is clearly being targeted at dudes. You know, this is, this is not an inclusive language you're using on your website. Yeah. And these can be big companies, you know, that this isn't a startup exactly. problem. But when you ask them, oh, are you trying to hire men? And they're like, no, no, of course. It's like, okay, well, did a man write the job description? Yes. Is, is it a male recruiter? Yes. Is it a male leader who might have had the opinion to check that? Yes. It's like, well, what? you need to have the diversity in the team to make mm. those decisions to then actually change how this happens. You have to have someone who's empowered in the team you know, a woman to stand up and say, Hey, I don't think this is right for what we're trying to achieve and have them in a psychological safety to actually challenge uh, what they believe in. And often you don't have that in the workplace where even if you have someone um, and you have a diverse representation, they have to actually be empowered and feel safe to say, no, that's not right. Or yeah, it's actually offensive or that's microaggression or, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, 
that's only going to attract men to the role, um, for instance, as you just said. And I guess on that as well, you know, there's a lot of education that can be done. Um, you know, we're saying that these are things that are taught at such or rather ingrained in us at such a young age that you are totally oblivious to it potentially, you know, for, for a lot of your adult life. Um, you hear about sort of diversity coaching um, within workplaces. Is that part of the answer? Um, yes. So like at Google, we do unconscious bias training. Uh, we have, that has to happen for anyone who's in a role that would have anything to do with performance decision-making or promotion decisions. And then we have someone in the room who's there literally to catch and call out bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's their role. Like they have to say, oh, I, I feel like that comment might've had some bias in it because of X, Y, and Z. Um, so yeah, you have to have strategies because you have, you have to accept that bias exists. Everyone has bias. Everyone's been raised in an environment that will have created bias for them in some way. Um, and so you have to support your organization to actually know what their biases are and how to make sure that they're managed correctly and that we're not just running free, you know, with our biases unchecked. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. You know, sort of lastly, before we go to the questions um and it you know you've obviously had a very successful career um you're obviously in you know uh what anybody would would call a really successful position within google um but you know looking back and and maybe you know not looking back but but hopefully looking back did you struggle you know being a woman in the tech industry Is, is that something you've experienced definitely I've experienced a lot of bias in the workplace throughout my career. I've left jobs because I've had managers who were clearly not able to support women and to replace me and others with men. Um, And this is a piece of advice I've had for some people is if you feel like as a woman or as someone from a minority background, if you're not being supported and the organization doesn't have a culture of improving for diversity is very hard for an individual person to ever change that so i've made the decision a number of times to just leave and look for something where i feel like i'll be in a space where i'm you know respected and supported in the right way i've had things like i felt like i've had to work harder to overcompensate for being a woman in certain situations like people have make assumptions about my role or my purpose in a discussion um, assume that I'm young or that, you know, I'm there just to make things look pretty um, or that I'm asked to take the notes and organize the format of the meeting rather than contribute ideas and content um, and the strategy. And that's pretty common. Like um, women and people from minority backgrounds are um, pretty significantly either nominated or nominate themselves to do what we call office housework which is like tasks like organizing the birthday cards, events, meetings, notes, which are non-promotable tasks, right? They literally take time away from you to focus on stuff that's strategic and that is the things that will get you reward and recognition for. And so that we're, you know, there's bias built into that in that if it's assumed that you'll do those things and you're going to have less time to do the more critical work. Um, definitely gender salary inequality is a thing that I and many people face. And I realized this, uh, in my first role, 
Um, I think, unfortunately, people are not rewarded for staying in one position generally because you often get your salary increases when you move companies. Um, and I realized this like a potential to negotiate and I was in my first job and I was basically at the point of being like, I can't afford to even like live off my salary and I haven't had any increase. And I was like, all right, I need like 10,000 more or I'm leaving. And I got it, you know, that day. And I was like, how can it be possible that I could have had the capacity to earn a third extra of my salary at this moment. And it was just because I asked. Yeah. And at some point there's like, we tell boys, you know, it's okay to talk about money and to negotiate when they're young. And we tell women, Oh, you'll be recognized for your work. If you work hard and just do what you're supposed to be diligent and someone will reward you at the, at a certain point, but don't dare like talk enough Mm. about money. And when I've hired teams in London, I've been witness to this as a manager. Like at one point I hired a new team and I had six men and four women. Five of the men negotiated their salary. None of the women did. And in that negotiation, the men made, you know, 5,000 more, 4,000 more, sometimes more, sometimes less, but they always got more. So if you do that every single time you move jobs, that adds up to the point where you run a board and you've got a woman who's earning, you know, hundred to hundred fifty thousand less than her male counterpart because she didn't negotiate through all those moves in her career. Um, I learned that pretty. I was lucky I learned that early on, and now I try and coach women to ask for more every time you're getting a new job. You're in a really powerful position. This is not just for women. This is for everyone. When you're offered a job, that is your most powerful position to negotiate because you've gone through this recruitment process they've identified you are the person of everyone that they want for that role so usually a recruiter when they make an offer they have a band of what they could also give you if you ask for more because they know negotiation is common and people just don't ask i've never seen an offer revoked because someone negotiated of course it's just confidence to to ask so it's, it's bias built in that for people who don't negotiate Um, and yeah, so I think that's a big part of the inequality that we see in the system. Um, yeah. So I think that's probably a good summary of some of the struggles that Uh, I've had. So I appreciate you, uh, being so personal about it. Um, and just before we jump into the questions, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but if you could recommend one thing for everybody to read or to watch, or perhaps an article that just everybody should be reading um you know perhaps something enlightening perhaps something about confirmation uh, bias anything like that, that that you could think of i'd love to know it i would suggest what i said earlier which is um the women in the workplace report from mckenzie and not just for, for women for everyone to understand like what's our reality at the moment in terms of how the industry works and where people are struggling it's an interesting read for anyone who you might be either about to get onto the ladder or you might be at certain points to see like it quantified what you might be experiencing. Um, so yeah, I would check that one out. Thank you. Uh, and we'll share that around the wagon for sure. Um, onto the questions. We've got a few lined up, so I'm just going to jump in. Um, Enrica says, uh, what are the biggest challenges between a UX designer and developers? Mm, yes. Um, so the biggest challenges I would say is having enough 
time to build the empathy for each other's roles. Um, it's very easy to just put your head down and work on your thing and then, you know, bury your head in the sand and just like go down in a single route, whether that's designing something that is never, ever going to be feasible to build or implementing something um, that doesn't take into account, you know, the considerations of um, users and, you know, the input from the designer and ends up deviating. So I think the like one of the biggest challenges we see, especially early on in, in the career, is making a UX designer and an engineer realize that the biggest growth that they need to have in their job is the overlap of their jobs and how they collaborate together to kind of achieve that that end goal. Um, and if they're not doing that well, then that's where you see stuff fall apart and you know, time wasted going down directions that just aren't relevant. Um, so I think that, yeah, finding that right marriage between feasibility and something that's going to deliver a fantastic experience for users, like somewhere in the middle of that is the best thing that an engineer and designer can work on together. Mm, it makes sense. Um, Sebastian's going, uh, going for the heavy questions. Uh, he says, what accomplishment in your career are you most proud of? And what was your biggest disappointment? <laughs> um, just funny when you get asked that, because your brain naturally goes to like the negative first. <laughs> sure. And it's like when you have a performance review and you're like, I don't care about all the good stuff. So it's like, tell me what I'm not doing good of enough. Course, right? of so I'm going to answer the first bit first intentionally. Um, so when I was at eBay, I was working uh, as a senior designer on Gumtree, which is a peer-to-peer marketplace. And my manager told me that he was leaving. Um, and that was the same day that he had got a new manager. And mm. then that new new manager, um, I was going away on holiday the next day for a month and I booked this long break. So I had this one-day opportunity to... <laughs> basically put myself forward for the role and the only reason I did it is because I had um, a mentor who was our female head of marketing and I happened to have a meeting with her that day and she was like well do you think you could do the job it's like yeah I'm already doing like xyz because you know they've been walking out of the building basically because they wanted to go and um she was like so why don't you go tell the new boss that you can you do xyz and and put yourself forward for it I was like yeah why not so I did it was like hello I know you just joined today and I'm disappearing for a month but like here are all the reasons why I want this job and uh, I'll send it to you written so you can have a think about it while I'm gone and then I came back and I got the job and I was, that was my first formal management role. And it was great to do that at eBay because they had a really good management program to actually enable me. And then um, a few years later, I was awarded young digital leader of the year, which was an amazing moment for me. And yeah, I was very proud of that. Um, what was my biggest disappointment? I had a couple of moments when I worked in branding that I found very challenging, mm. which were, you know, where the projects ultimately failed because, you know, it was so subjective that the stakeholder just didn't want the outcome that we had spent six months working on. Yeah. And uh, it turned out that we'd been talking to the wrong person in the organisation and when it got actually presented to the CEO, they hated it. Mm. Um, and that was pretty disappointing. I think I had 
a week at home being very sad <laughs> after that moment. Right. Um, but, you know, I think what's important for me that I've learned throughout my career that whenever you have a disappointment or a failure, you know, or a, what instead of it being seen as a failure, thinking about it as a learning and only holding on to it for the time that it's actually valuable, which is the time where you are getting takeaways from it. Like, okay, so next time I would do this and this differently. And uh, what we see with women usually is that they hold on to that failure or that learning far beyond the usefulness of it to the point where it's just something that is beating you down of like, oh, that time I didn't do that thing and I didn't do well at it. Um, and it's like, that's just not useful because it's just negative self-talk. So it's like, it's great to have failures and, and disappointments and learnings as you learn and you grow and you expand. Um, but it's only good if you just get the experience of what happened, you think about it and then you move on and you let it go and recognize that's just part of, of developing. Uh, okay. So a few people want to know uh, the answer to this one. So this is from Anna and she says, how easy to switch career from digital marketing role to UX design? And will marketing experience offer an advantage when starting a UX career? Yeah, I think um, it's a good segue in because you're already building up an expertise in terms of how to communicate to users, how to get them to drive behavior. You might have been doing marketing campaigns, you might have been optimizing for conversion and that translates really well a lot of marketing roles think analytically and about how things are like are they optimized or not and that kind of mindset is really good for ux design to think about what the uh, analysis is of the design itself um, we actually have someone who's a product marketer who's working in our team at the moment on a 20 percent role because um, they want to learn about ux design yeah. And, you know, they have a completely different job, but it doesn't matter. You know, they're just, they're helping out in that space. Um, and it's, you know, naturally works well for them. They're a product marketer, so they're in the product mindset. But yeah, I think you can definitely switch. I think it's the same advice that I had earlier around building up experience mm -hmm. in your spare time, um, building up your own digital portfolio, um, doing design exercises and projects for um, things that you're passionate about. Uh, and then, yes, that experience should carry through and uh, with a company that can recognize that soft skills translate between jobs and hard skills can be learned on the job. Mm. And presumably a lot of the work that's being done in digital marketing could be used as portfolio work anyway. You know, it's, it's not dissimilar in that sense. Yeah, I would definitely showcase that in the portfolio. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Okay, so Roshni says, what are some of your techniques for localized design at Google? Mm, yes. Um, so this is where um, prototyping can really work well in that you, if you can have something that lets you use real data to actually test before you go through into full implementation, that's ideal because... Um, you know, we've got some prototypes that are linked up so that we can actually uh, run, you know, a tester design with different language variants. Um, and we have plugins for Figma and Sketch that do that as well, which will basically do your string translation for you um, so that you can see even when you're designing, you know, what is this going to look like? Um, and um, so we have as a thing that we need to do for every design is to outline 
what the rules are for each of your design elements, assuming that you're always going to end up having a longer character count than what you've designed for, you know, in the optimal case. So, you know, I think one of the longest character counts I've worked with is like Finnish. It was just, and Russian, like it, you would just always end up with two or three times the amount of text than what you had originally designed in English. Um, so you would have to say, okay, well, um, how is this unit going to expand? Um, when's its upper limit reached? When do we truncate? Um, and building that logic in. So we also have a localization team at Google, um, which is great, who do the um, localization for us and make sure that everything is appropriate in terms of how it's translated and then they'll give us feedback to say if something's actually broken for certain languages um and we'll work with engineering to make sure that we can yeah great um so i think we've got somebody here who's looking to move into ux uh, john asks how many projects are ideal when showcasing work to a job interview or recruiter for ux Mm, yes, and there's a lot of contentious on this, but okay. as, a, as a hiring manager myself, um, if I'm looking at a portfolio online or in a PDF, I'm, I'm going to have, you know, maximum three to five minutes. Mm. of uh, That's at the upper limit. But usually you have like one minute in the first minute to like really capture the attention of someone. So I, I would, I usually advise people to have um, like a, a first thing is a good case study, which is like the best case study that you have, which is a pretty good in-depth example of like how you're actually working from every stage of a project um, and then have three or four shorter examples, which are like, um, this was the problem. Um, this is how I worked on it. And here was the end result and maybe a couple of visuals, but not like a full in-depth thing of all the steps that went into it. Um, and that is honestly enough, like four projects, five maximum that get shown in that. And you don't want to give away everything in that either, because you want to, you usually now ask to do presentations of your work in interviews um, so most Facebook and Google, they'll ask you to present two projects and you'll need to do that full case study example for two projects when you come in. Um, so you want to make sure that you've got that ready as well. And it's, um, not the exact translation of your portfolio, uh, if that makes sense. So yeah, there's this balance of showing enough work, but making it brief enough that someone can actually scan it and do and like read it in a very short amount of time. And it sounds like it's really doubling down on that first one, just to make sure you grab that attention right there. Exactly. And the design of the thing itself, <laughs> like making sure, cause it is a design artifact in itself, right? Whether even a PDF, like you will be judged by how understandable the document is and the copy that's within it. Uh, all of that, um, if it's a role that's slightly visual, the actual layout of the portfolio is like, fundamentally important because it's a design exercise. Of course. Great. So this is Enrique again. Uh, on the negotiation subject, is it okay to negotiate as a junior or entry-level candidate? Definitely. And it might just be £2,000. You know, it might be an extra benefit that you ask mm. for 
Um, a lot of startups and other companies are, are offering equity and shares. It might be just a few more share stock options. Um, it, you know, just that little bit more um, is important and it's a good exercise. Um, and the budgets are usually built to offer just that little bit more. Is there a guideline you'd use, sort of a percentage or anything like that, or is it too difficult? It's very difficult to say, and there's a lot of different schools of thought about, like, salaries. And um, one of the things I read recently is that you should be the one who says the number first because mm. whatever number is said first, your ream of negotiation from that number is usually within a 20% boundary of it. Um, so if they say the number first, then your ability to negotiate up is limited by whatever that number was first. So you, um, usually in the recruitment process, a recruiter will ask you um, what you're looking for and hopefully not what you're on now because that question is laced with bias because you might have experienced bias all through your career and be earning you know 20 or 30 pounds less than what you should be. Um, so, yeah, and you have that option like when you say what do you want to say at least 20% more than what you actually want. Uh, so number one is from Arnaud. I hope I pronounced that properly. Um, and they say, what is the role of copywriting microcopy in your current job? And is there a specialist UX copywriter in your team? Um, and I guess, do, do you work with them? Is, is that by extension? Yeah, so we have two roles that help us in terms of content itself. So we have a content strategist and we have a UX writer. Um, the content strategist will work with us early in the project to help us define the principles of like how are we going to work with content, what's our tone of voice going to be, um, what what are the principles going to be. And a UX writer is responsible for the actual strings itself um, like what does the button say? What does the headline say? What are our patterns for those? Um, so yes. So we basically, we have a UX writer in our team and they will collaborate with each designer to actually define the end copy that goes into the, the final product. So we're lucky at Google to have that. I've worked in a lot of places where you don't have that. Um, and you usually whatever ends up in the design is the thing <laughs> that gets implemented. <laughs> um, so a designer usually has to wear that hat yeah. as a copywriter. Um, so we've got one here. This, this is sort of a difficult one. Um, what is the salary range we should be looking at or expecting as an entry or junior level UX designer? Um, so it's really depends on the yeah so if you look at london i don't want to answer that and not be right so mm. once i'd rather send you around a link which is the results and there's a great junior design community um which is run by a guy called tom cottrell and he's been doing salary surveys and has kind of published um some up-to-date guidance on that I think that's really useful for anyone when they're thinking about like what the salary ranges are is to have some examples of like what other companies are actually um, uh, are asking for that because it does differ depending yeah. on, on the role in the company. Um, 
Roshni, on that, if you're uh, with Lewagon, we can then share that round. If you're not, just ping somebody an email and, and we can get that to you. And, and that would be great, Melanie. Thank you. Um, so the last two here, uh, we've got uh, Remainer saying, um, even with a good portfolio, but no real life experience, is it possible to land a job in a big company? And also, is age a problem to switch career? Um, okay, so first thing, um, if you're applying for an entry-level job, then not having real-life experience shouldn't be a prerequisite. Like, I get extremely frustrated by, you know, junior positions where they say, must have two or three years' experience, <laughs> but, but that's literally yeah. not the point. So it depends on the organisation. Um, I think that if you can create for yourself an opportunity to have real experience, even if you don't have the job, whether it's doing a freelance project that you do for a friend or family member where you've got like a real outcome that actually goes live and you can kind of show your potential employer that you did, you know, create something uh, in your own circumstance that, you know, was a real project that went through to the end um, and went beyond the theory of a project is important. So you often see people thinking about how can I show that I worked on something that, actually went out the door um but try not to work for free that's the the big thing i really have an issue with um and is age a problem i I wish i could say no um and i wish that no that every organization in the world didn't have a bias towards age um but definitely that is definitely one of the biases that exists i think if you find the right company it doesn't matter i think like a google you have a really broad set of people from different backgrounds and different ages and pretty common to have people who've swapped their roles multiple times. So you really can't judge someone at all by how they look because you just have no idea like, what is underneath that. Cool. So I would just, you know, encourage you not to let that hold you back. And um, if you feel like that is holding you back in a company or might, you know, is holding you back in that interview process, then maybe it's not the right company <laughs> to go to. Um, and I know that that's hard when you're looking for a job and, you know, you're, you're desperate for a position. But if you, I think sometimes it's better to hold out as long as you can for a role that suits you because if you accept something that you feel is against something that's with your own values or morals or isn't going to be an environment that's not supportive for you, that can be more negative than almost having a job because you can end up in a place where um, you're being bullied. You feel like you have no motivation um, and you're really struggling. Um, and then it's very hard to find a job when you're in that kind of mindset um, because you don't have a good self-worth when you're in that kind of environment. And I've spoken to far too many people who've been in a role and have gotten to that point where they don't even have any confidence anymore in themselves because they've been in this environment that's just so toxic mm. and it's not them it's the environment but it's just you know um so hard for them to separate that and then to then go and interview and tell someone how good you are is almost possible when you're in that mindset so yeah thinking carefully is important thank you for that uh, i'm just going to do one last one if i can so Zayad, and again, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that okay, says, how do you get around the one to two year experience barrier when transitioning field, especially if HR can just filter you out based on it? Yes. So I think this is important where um, wherever you can try to try and connect to someone like in the organization. Like if you see the company and the role, it's pretty easy on LinkedIn to find out 
who the manager might be of that position, you know, if it's not a giant organization, like, is there someone real who you can reach out to um, and connect with? And, you know, you might have experience in a slightly different field that's still relevant. Um, and so you just want someone who you can talk to about that. So yeah, thinking about it in like non-traditional ways. Like when I got my first job, I literally went door to door to design agencies, like knocking on the door, and saying like here's my portfolio and just like being there in person because if you were just submitting stuff online you were just another application amongst hundreds and it was very hard for them to actually see you as a real person and to understand that so any way that you can break through the barrier slightly i think it's really important that's why a lot of roles get filled through networking and um, personal introduction so yes i think a bit of that and then yeah just describing even in your resume how you might have experience from a slightly different thing that's that is relevant in some way even if it doesn't fit the traditional you know relevant experience of working Mm. as a designer great um super well thank you for all of your answers and for your time um and uh you know sorry to sort of keep you a little bit longer than planned um, I think Celine's just going to jump back in um, and close this up, but just from everybody and I think from all the audience as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button. 